Welcome to the podcast, it's the word on the hill. Nice, that was uh, like a little old-timey country music. Yep. Not the new country, it's not like KYGO country, it's like old-timey country. It's like Marty Hoggin. Marty Robbins. (laughs) 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 Because this is like the seventh opening we've had. Yeah, yeah, like I I keep on... all some variation of themselves. (laughs) Actually, I've sang seven different randomly generated country songs no what's remarkable is that they're almost identical no i think i really we can go back and listen no i've erased them all but they're they're pretty they were pretty darn close well you which been... is really impressive incidentally thanks Th- thank you for well, sharing your gifts with us today. hey well scott powell my name is father peter musset hi i'm father peter musset my name is scott powell nice what is this you. thing we're doing oh it's the word on the hill podcast yep and we're a couple of lanky guys who do that yeah. word on the hill getting less and less so we had, big, we had a big, big lunch today. Yep, Big Lebowski. Big Lebowski today. And there's, there's little fruit-shaped candy literally scattered across the Dude, okay, so check this out. Like, so at the movie Piles theater, they have bulk candy. Have you ever Is seen that? Is that what this – I mean, I, I was – Yeah, yeah. So uh, No, I have not. So what I, movie theater? Um, Costco movie? The Costco movie theater? Costco movie theater. <laughs> <laughs> Those Boulder. are just TVs that are for sale. That's it's, not a movie theater. And and I just really saw, I saw the bulk candy and I just got inspired. And so- you Just pull up a couch from the but, furniture but aisle have, <laughs> onto the TVs. And they have this- Oh, little, you're just like, not letting me have this. <laughs> <laughs> you are working so hard. This is- this Okay, is, okay. So you're in the bulk candy aisle of the so movie they, theater. I, I pull the, the, like, they have these like little like lever things that the, and it flows out okay. rather than scoops. And it's really, it's really hard like the cereal to, things in the cafeteria in college right and yeah. it's really hard to like control the flow so i ended up spending like 18 dollars on bulk candy 18 dollars yeah because it was it's like 14 dollars wow. a pound or something jeez but it was a that lot of does candy. not seem like a good deal <laughs> no it's not a good deal this is what happened so um we're in the 23rd sunday in ordinary time is that right Yep. You're just jumping right in, which is good. Because well, I right. wanted to get off the topic of that candy because I'm embarrassed. But it's so don't be. So basically, it's happened it's every, to all of us. It's everywhere. We've, we've all. It, it is kind of everywhere, though. Which <laughs> is... <laughs> okay. Anyway, Isaiah 35. Uh, apparently, the first reading is Isaiah 35, four to seven a. Yeah. Good thing we don't have B. Am I right? Uh, oh. I don't know. That uh, <laughs> our responsorial psalm is coming from psalm. Is coming from psalm. I don't want to. Psalm. Our New Jerseyans. Our Psalm uh, 146, verses 6 through 7, 8 through 9, and 9 through 10, with the response itself coming from 1B. Whatever happened to imitation is the highest form of flattery. I tell my kids that when they mock each other. <laughs> I, I, you, that's, I that's what go to for me all the time. Well, She's copying me! <laughs> Actually, imitation is the highest form of flattery. No, it's a go to in my house almost every day. I like that. So nothing happened to it. At least from my point of view, it's it's like uh, Star Lord and Thor. It's like Star Lord and Thor. Apparently, so you know that was the highest form of flattery. So I'm just oh, showing you how this works. Okay, I felt yeah. really flattered right there. Did you? No. Yeah, neither did my kids. <laughs> they, don't, they don't buy it. <laughs> so apparently, the second reading is James two one to five. Apparently, that's what they say. And our gospel is coming from Mark chapter seven. We're still in the 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 narrative of the bread. Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. That one makes me tired. Oh, because he was entire. Mm-hmm. Oh, he, he is entire, in fact. He is whole and, and entire. Man, I don't mean to tire you out on that one. It really kind of did. I'm exhausted. Actually, me too. Oh, for Pete's sake. 
my <sighs> sake? All right. Thus says the Lord. Isaiah 35. Um, my... Mm. Don't be frightened. <laughs> oh. Um, be strong. What do I say about Isaiah 35? So I have a whole... Fear not. But, oh, my gosh. Isaiah 35. Are we done? Yeah. I just <laughs> I wanted to just to say, say all those things with, like, um, an explosive word. Yeah, it was important. That was it was very explosive. It was good that you did that. I'm happy for us. So when I think of Isaiah 35, I think of John the Baptist in prison. You do. I do. Do you know why? Because Which, um, he quotes it. Uh, John doesn't. But Isaiah 35. So so, and I think we're not in John. No, I know we're not. What? We're in Mark. I know John why the Baptist. John the Baptist doesn't do it. What? What about John the Evangelist? <laughs> Oh my goodness. I don't know if you're messing with me or not. I but am. It's the worst. <laughs> I'm totally messing with you. Do you know you. where John's martyrdom is in Mark? I can't remember. I, I should have uh, sought it out off the top of my head. Yeah, here it is. It's in uh, chapter six. Okay. So here's what ha. Oh, is that right? Yeah, it is. Um, so this is, and I'm, I'm going to frame it this way. Take it for whatever you will. But this was my immediate, when I read that it was Isaiah 35, this is what jumped to my head. Here's what's going on it's that great scene. I, I love this scene. Because I, I, for some reason, like show scenes that show the humanness of people that are, are very important. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but we, we struggle. And I, there's this insight, I think, that we get into John the Baptist's. I think he's struggling. Some of the saints would disagree with me. Some of the saints would agree with me. Jury's out a little bit. But here's the deal. So John the Baptist is sitting in prison. And it's in the middle of this scene. Are you, are you the one to come? He throws down. Oh, I think that's in Matthew. Hmm. It is in Matthew. Mark is the one who tells us the story of his martyrdom, but it's in Matthew that we actually get this scene. But but here's what's happening in mm. Matthew. So John's sitting in prison. He's hearing about how Jesus is doing these amazing things. So where are we in Mark? Well, in what we've been reading the last few weeks liturgically, Jesus has been performing these miracles, right? And you have groups of scribes and Pharisees and these religious leaders who are coming up, hearing about it, and they're calling him out because, number one, he's not doing it according to not the Deuteronomic law, but these human traditions that they've formed around the law. You're breaking it. You're not doing things the way that we say you ought to be doing it. Mm. And they're ticked off because... He's not healing people the right way. He's not feeding people or doing the miraculous or caring for or or healing people in all these ways. And they're ticked off about it, right? Right. So we've already established that, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, so John the Baptist, at least according to Matthew, is hearing about all—I think it's in Matthew 12. But he's hearing about all these things. And imagine that you're John. So number one, you're Jesus's cousin. I, had, I hesitated on that. <laughs> yeah, you're Jesus' cousin, <laughs> which is, so there's a familial connection, but you were also the one who heralded him. Like, you're the one who was like, I am the one whose job it is to prepare the way for you to do everything that you're doing. He is a big deal in the schema of the kingdom of God, right? John the Baptist, he's the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's the first of the New Testament messengers. I mean, he's, he's huge. And yet, here he is sitting in a prison cell. Thinking to himself, wait a second, like Jesus is doing all these amazing things. He's healing people. He's bringing new life. So why am I his cousin and his herald and kind of his right hand man? Why am I rotting in a prison cell? So he sends word and he's like, hey, send word to Jesus and be like, and I, so again, some of the, some of the readings on this are, I see some of them as being very, very, ah, I don't want to call them overly pious. But I just hear John in a different way. And maybe that says more about me than it says about John. But John basically says, send word to Jesus and be like, are you the Messiah? Are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for somebody else? Which is so significant in like, in like 
all of us. I mean, it, like, yes, right. Like, like uh, this. Is, I think that sometimes the ambiguity of the scriptures is not um, meant for a vagueness of academia, but for an openness. For experience, uh, for us to insert ourselves in it, right? To see yeah. and to, to like, that's actually very Augustinian. August, yeah, uh, that's true. Uh, Saint Augustine would um, always say to us, um, "Put yourself in the position of right. those who are there." So when I put myself in the position so of Ignatius, Saint John the Baptist, right? Ignatius, he, he would put say, "Put yourself in the scene." Ah, so, yeah, you're right. The, hey, good distinction. Yes, yeah, so because like Augustinian prayer is, is about yeah, yeah. where is the heart residing. Yeah. Well, what would it feel like for God to ask you to go up to Sinai? Yeah. What would it feel like for you in the prison mm. as you're sitting there and you're saying like, I thought that you were the one, but I'm confused now. Well, I don't think he is confused. That's the thing with my read of John the Baptist. Um, in feeling, not in yeah, mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. So, so because this is yeah. the thing yeah, is, right. is that in, in feelings, he's saying, I need you to affirm again to me that you are the Messiah and that you're in control. See, I don't even think it's that. I mean, I think that's a part of it, but I, it's... <laughs> It's hard on this podcast to not keep relating this to what's happening in the church right. these days. But what I'm hearing is I know who you are. I've experienced it. I was there. And I'm in full knowledge of who you are. I'm ticked off that you're not helping me right now. Because I know who you are and I know you can. And you're not. And I'm frustrated by that. Mm. Which, you know, for those of us who are dealing with these scandals in the church and actually aren't particularly tempted to leave the church... What people like me then are left with is just to be angry because I know what the church is. I understand the theology. I know who Jesus is, but I feel like we've been left out in the cold. Mm. And it's this question of like, when are you going to show up for us? Which is, it's a real human emotion. And I'm not trying to put words in John's mouth. And so, you know, people have said, well, he's just saying this to, to show his disciples that Jesus is really Lord. Maybe there's questioning. Maybe he's confused. Maybe he's like, what's going on? Um, but I always hear it as just, I'm mad at you. I'm mad at you because you left me here and I'm hurt by that. And there's something just, I don't know, there's something very real about that. And so Jesus responds and he's like, all right, send this word back to John the Baptist in prison. Tell him, let me get open to my scriptures, to my scripture. He says, basically tell him, um, uh, I'm reading from Isaiah because that's what he quotes. Here is the Lord. He comes with vindication. The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be cleared. Uh, the lame will leap like a stag. The tongue of the mute will sing. Streams will burst forth. And blessed is he who takes no offense at me. And I like that Jesus throws in the blessed is he who takes no offense at me. Because I think he also gets the sense that John is either frustrated or confused or whatever he is. And so Jesus in coded language, because Jesus really, this is getting into a bigger topic, but I, I, w- I was having this discussion with somebody recently. There was this, uh, I went, you remember when the movie The Passion of the Christ came out? Yes. I feel like I've probably talked about this in the podcast before. Uh, many, many times. <laughs> well, the point is there is this sort of understanding that exists out there that Jesus' reason for living, Jesus' reason for coming incarnate was to die on the cross, which is way too simplistic of a way of looking at it. Jesus' reason for coming was to establish a church that he would then die for and right. rise again and defeat death. Right. But he came to establish a church. And so throughout the Gospels, what does Jesus spend much of the Gospels doing? Evading death trying not to be killed. And so here's John in a Roman prison, 
asking the question, are you really the king? Which is a treasonous question if there is only one king who is Caesar. Mm, and he right. gives this sort of coded, veiled answer. Hey, tell him this. Right. The blind are open. The blind can see. The deaf can hear. The lame are walking. The mute will sing. And blesses he who takes no offense. Which, in the context, is Isaiah saying, hey, when the Messiah comes... When God finally steps into the world to set things right again, which is the desire that all of humanity has had from the beginning, here's what you'll see. You'll see the deaf seeing. You'll see the, the, blind, the, the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, the lame walking, the mute singing, et cetera, et cetera. And don't take offense at this. Right. Because your time is to come. And I wonder if that's partially why Jesus slips in that last line. Blessed is he who takes no offense at me. It's tempting to take offense when you see good things happening to other people when you're feeling like you're in pain. Why are they being given the gift of hope when I'm in despair? Why does Jesus seem to be caring for those people when he's not caring for me? Right. And he's saying, blessed is he who takes no offense at me. Your time will come. The Messiah came to set the world to rights. And it doesn't happen all at one moment. But what it's, it's kind of fascinating where Isaiah shows up in... The book itself. So Isaiah, we've talked a million times on the podcast about how Isaiah is split into two parts, right? There's the bad news and there's the good news. And Isaiah is speaking to a people who are, it spans a long period of time. So it's a group of people who are about to go into exile and slavery, a group of people who are in exile and slavery, and a group of people who are wondering when they will ever get out of exile and slavery. And so there's the bad news in the first half of the book that says, okay, here's why all this is happening. And then there's the good news about what's going to happen when God finally does actually let you out of your room from being grounded, right? For, to put it in a, in a pitifully small way. What happens when things get set back to rights? But it's not a strict division of good news, bad news. Because this actually shows up in the bad news section, which I find greatly comforting that in the midst of the section of Isaiah on all of the bad news and the punishment and the sin and the consequences, even embedded within the bad news, there is probably one of the greatest prophetic statements of hope that exists in the Bible. That in the midst of all this darkness, this is going to happen. We'll get to like the full bodied good news section of Isaiah soon. It shows up in chapter 60, right? Or 40 through 66. But here in chapter 35, before we get that, in the middle of the darkness, we get this inkling of brightness. Right. Not even an inkling, a pretty profound one, yeah. which Jesus uses to show not only who he is, but why and how he's doing what he's doing. So to put it in a Markan context, he's doing all this stuff. And the church is trying to point us, just kind of like Matthew does in chapter 12, if you see Jesus doing these things, that's how you know that everything humanity has been expecting to come has now been ushered into human history. It's begun now. Mm. And guess what? There's a bunch of people taking offense at it because mm. you see the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders taking great offense at Jesus performing these miracles. They're taking offense at Jesus fulfilling Isaiah 35. Mm. They're taking offense at God's finally stepping into human history and setting things right because they're not seeing its fullness yet. And again, I keep in my own life coming back to this idea that I, I know what I know and I've seen what I've seen and I've experienced the church and I know intellectual things and I know things on a spiritual and emotional level too. I've experienced that. But we still have these moments where like, why not? Why not me? Why aren't you stepping into this situation yet, Jesus? Why are you over there and not over here? Why are those people being taken care of? Why are those people hurting so badly? Why do those people seem to be getting off scot-free and these people suffering profoundly? Hmm. This is the question that I think the scriptures are trying to wrestle with. 
Right. And Jesus is slowly, methodically unveiling it, which is painful. But that's kind of how he does it. Yeah. Does that make any sense? It does. I mean, like, I look and this is trying to say that in the middle of the desert, something good is going to happen. Yeah. And the, the truth is, is that it's it's hard to believe that when you're in the desert. In the desert. You know, I think of Clark Griswold. <laughs> As as one would. As one would in the middle of the desert looking for an oasis. Oh, in the original vacation. Yeah, original. I, my mind kept going to Christmas vacation. Yeah, yeah. yeah the I, desert, that's a rough scene. Yeah, dude. They, they they drive the thing off and then they- The family truckster. The family truckster. <laughs> so, but, which is interesting because when you're in the desert and you're not sure that it's going to sprout and uh, that you're going to get a pool or any water- then what do we do? In the midst of purification into and, and illumination, we always go into praise. Yes. So the psalm is, so, praise, is praise the Lord my soul. And it's like, okay, and, and, and in praise, what we do is we get grateful for the things that God has done in remembrance um, because um, it's, it's hard to remember. And, and we can get super consumed. This is the nature of humanity. We can get super consumed by the experience of the hardships that are immediately in front of us and forget that God's grace is enduring and perduring and that mm. the whole the whole of everything is being commanded and, and, and does have God at the helm. So we praise him and we remember that he is actually broke through in history. Yeah, absolutely. Or that he is the Which, author of history. And is constantly breaking through in history. Right. It's, it's this continuous... Yeah, or super process. cooperating, as we would say. Super cooperating. I wonder what the Greek would be for that. Um, there actually is a, well, I don't know. I don't know if it's a good segue or not, but it brings us to James, one way or the other. Se- segways um, are uh, a personal transportation device based on the Stirling engine, which is taking the principle of hot and cold and the difference between them and utilizing them for kinetic energy. Have you ever driven a Segway? No. Oh. But I want to. Yeah, we all do. So, James. Okay, the thing I want to say about James, James is beautiful. It's a, it's a great passage. We can talk about it in a second. <laughs> but I do want to say a word about the context of James, which we don't know a whole lot about. No, um, I've never he, known he, much He identifies about. himself as the brother of the Lord. So it's I think it's one of the apostles. There's two apostles, Jameses, right? Um, lesser and greater. Yeah, lesser and greater. And I, I, I... Confuse them always. I confuse them always. But I think it's also very interesting, the destination of this book. Which we, it's not one of the, the, a lot of the letters just not like the Rome, the letter to the Romans is written to Rome. The letter to the Corinthians is written to the church in Corinth, et cetera, et cetera. This one, do you know who this one is addressed to? It's addressed to the 12, sorry, I didn't let you answer. You can just nod. You have a bunch of bolt candy in your mouth. No, I don't. <laughs> they, they can know. It's all right. My brother knows. So he heard friends. me chewing way before <laughs> I moved away from the microphone. You're doing a great job moving away from the mic. Um, it's addressed to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. And you're like, what does that mean? Well, we don't ex- exactly know what it means, but I think what it, who it's addressed to. So it's a it's a funny thing the way the New Testament w- epistles wouldn't we, work. Wouldn't we call that of the dispersion? The, the, there's a difference between diaspora dispersion. Maybe it's the apostolic dispersion. See, I don't think it is. Okay, it, it could be. I don't know. I'm not an academic. It's a possibility. So we talked about the dia- we talked about the diaspora, the dispersion. They're, they're they're sort of used interchangeably. So you know, in the Old Testament, when the twelve tribe, well, we talked about the exile, right? In Isaiah, when exile happens and the twelve tribes are lost and sort of spread to the four winds, this is them being dispersed, and it's what's known as the diaspora. But I don't think that's who it's addressed to because it's a, it's a letter. So most of, well, all of Paul's letters 
are addressed to Gentile, non-Jewish Christians. And those are the letters I think most of us are most familiar with. The Pauline letters kind of kind of uh, rise to the top. I mean, there's such brilliant theology that Paul uses. But he exclusively writes to non-Jews, which is the whole irony of the Pauline theology, is that this is the greatest of the Jewish teachers sent to teach everybody else who would not actually have much access to his brilliance. This is the guy that knows the law. This is the guy that knows Hebrew. He understands the the Talmud and all of the traditions and the rabbinic stuff. He is brilliant. And he is sent by God to the precise people who will appreciate that least, to the Gentiles, which (laughs) is fascinating. It's so fascinating. James, though, sounds like it's written to Jewish Christians. So probably, obviously, they're believers in Jesus because of what he says. But being of the dispersion of the 12 tribes, so these are people from the 12 tribes, from Jewish descent, from Israelite descent, ethnically, who are now dispersed. Well, what does the dispersion actually mean in this context? Well, I think it has to do with, um, yeah, dispersion. How do you, how do you, Hebrew Christians who are either exiled from Palestine itself, so maybe they're just, you know, people who are spread geographically, Or maybe there's more of a spiritual meaning to this dispersion. Mm. Because if you think about the context, about the time frame that this would have been written, I I keep thinking of the letter to the Hebrews, which is this encouragement to Jewish Christians specifically who would have been suffering profoundly and tempted to throw in the towel. Remember, what are the Gospels about? The Gospels, in a lot of ways, are about Jesus going throughout... Yeah, the, the, the Gentile region, but then down to his own people, to the Jewish people, telling them why it's a bad idea to go to war with Rome. Because their job as Christians is not to slaughter their enemies, but to convert their enemies and love their enemies and forgive their enemies. Right. So imagine you're a Jewish Christian now, and you're a Jew who's living in around Palestine. Okay. You, and you're a believer in Jesus. Right? Yes. Everyone you know, your parents, your kids, your coworkers, your family, your friends— they're all preparing for war against Rome. And it's not a political war, it's a religious war because Rome is attacking the foundation of who we are as the people of God. And the temple is in danger and that's the presence of God. But you have made a decision not to fight in that war because what? Now you believe in this Jesus who said, actually forgive your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. You cannot fight. When you see wars and rumors of wars, Jesus says, flee to the hills. And so can you imagine how your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers and your family and everybody else would respond when everybody's preparing for the most important holy war that there is when you say, yeah, I'm out. I'm not going to do that Yeah. because this Jesus guy told me to love those people instead. I mean, can you imagine the pressure of like, yeah, are you kidding me? You're number one. You're not one of us anymore. You are a loser. You're a, you're weak. You're treason. You're not, you know, just imagine And so I partially wonder, maybe that's part of what the dispersion is. We are a part of the 12 tribes, but we feel dispersed. We don't feel like we are part of God's family anymore. Because the rest of my people who are God's family, they've all cast me out. Because I believe in this Jesus, who is supposed to be our Messiah, but I'm having a really hard time reconciling all those things. Right. Jesus is my Messiah, yet all of my people have not only rejected him, but now reject the message that he gave me that I'm trying to live by, and have rejected me by extension. Can you imagine what that would be like? Oh. I mean, it's hard to live our faith on an everyday right. level, but that's a whole different level to me. Yeah. So I wonder if there's both a spiritual and a, a, a geographic dispersion that these people are living through. Which, um, yeah, so that's, I think, the context for what he says. Yeah, that's, that's like a... 
that's beyond what I can imagine sociologically. And so then when he, when you have that kind of backdrop, when he, when he begins to say, when we're in chapter two, so we're well in, my brothers and sisters show no partiality, uh, which, well, so as you adhere to faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, for if a man with gold rings and fine clothes comes into your assembly and a poor person in shabby clothes also comes in and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here, please, while you say to the poor one, stand there, or sit at my feet. Have you not made a distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil designs? So listen, my beloved, excuse me, beloved brothers and sisters, did not God chose, choose those who were poor in the world, a.k.a. you, because you've lost your homes and your land and everything else you love, um, to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? He's saying, I think you have been living through this profoundly difficult time of loss, and yet, like we all do, we still struggle with thinking we're better than everybody else because that's what we do. That's what human beings do, right? And I wonder what sort of gift of humility is going to come for Catholics who are living through the scandals that we're actually living through right now. Now, we're better than everybody in the sense that God has given us access to gifts that are pretty intense. Not because we're better, though. It's not because there's anything about us, but he's given us access to the grace in which we stand, to quote Paul. He's given us access to the sacraments and this priesthood and everything else. And the temptation of the people of God from the beginning, this is the whole Old Testament story, is to say, well, God has given us all of these really profound gifts, therefore we're better than you guys. Even when we're suffering in the dispersion, even when we're suffering, you know, with this isolation from everyone we love, we're still putting ourselves in pedestals above everybody else. That's what James is saying. And he's saying, do you not see what the reality of the world around you is? I think that that's always the temptation of suffering is to to put yourself above like because we're desperate right because and I, I talk about this a lot about judgment the difference between making judgments which we have to do we have to right. make judgments about what's right and what's wrong not about people not about well, to say sometimes about people but not not so I mean n- not about their salvation right if there's kids that are bad influences on my son and daughter you have to make a judgment I can be like no that. you can't stand yeah I'm making a judgment that you can't hang out with them anymore right which is right which is right but that's and different than th- eternal judgment yeah soul good. judgment right and then, but then there's judgmentalism, mm. which I, th- I always like to say it's about security. It's like how do mm. I how do I find safety for myself mm. and make myself feel okay yeah. is by trashing and degrading others, which is usually coming about because I don't feel okay, right? I right. mean, that's when that's when we tend to get most judgmental is when we feel like we're not okay and we need to be, which I I think is. I think that's the human temptation. It is. And so how do you, that's when you remain saying we are equal in dignity, all of us. Mm. We've been called. How can the hand say to the foot, you, I don't need you? Which is what... Uh, I don't mean to stretch this. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to push too hard for a segue. It's what the, the Pharisees and the scribes are doing to Jesus. I was going to try to make that more <laughs> pithy and cute yeah, <laughs> as far as segues. But you, you, know what they, you know what they call that? Um, fail. No, it was so rough. I was trying to. Oh, I know it was funny. It, was it wasn't. Funny. No, it, was it wasn't. No, it's funny. funny. It's not yes. funny. <laughs> it's okay. I still love you, even if I'm not funny. You are funny. You are funny too. Um, one of the things that's happening here in Mark. By the time we get to Mark seven, we was it last? What was last week? Was last week the one where they were uh, questioning Jesus about the ritual laws, the clean, cleansing yes. and washing and stuff? Yep. So we have that moment, which I contended last week. I argued that that the reason that they're they're 
um, so angry about his lack of cleanliness laws and all this stuff, which are man-made rituals, not biblical, was because they heard about the multiplication of the bread, the loaves and the fishes. And they're like, all your disciples ate a bunch of bread without washing their hands correctly in, I, our, in our eyes. That was one of those insights that will always stay with me. It's like, yeah, I'll tell you, when you see somebody with extraordinary gifts, if you feel like you were supposed to have those gifts— you can develop such resentment in your heart. You're saying that's what the Pharisees and scribes are doing. Yeah, yeah, they, they're just yeah. resentful because, in a certain certain way, they like know that their mission was to feed that's and to care. Job. Yeah, that's totally. our job, and you took it. And but then they recognize that they didn't do it, and so then they're like, mm. "How do I get that back?" But then, am I doing it the right way? It's just stupid, confusing. And and so they resort to anger, right. and Blaming and accusations, right? And Jesus responds. Basically by upping it. <laughs> He's like, I'm going to do even more. So what we get actually this week is the second of two big healings of Gentiles. So basically he responds in a certain way to what they're saying about uncleanliness and not following the Jewish rituals with outright healing non-Jews mm. from, from infirmities. Basically fulfilling uh, Isaiah 35, which is mm. what we started with. So the one that came right before that we actually didn't get, that our liturgy skipped over it, is that very troubling story, actually, about the woman, um, the Syrophoenician woman, Remember who, um, he goes into this house, this woman sneaks in, she, her daughter has an unclean spirit, and he was like, he, he, it's this very strange story where he's like, let the dogs, um, let the children be fed first, first not right, yeah, yeah, the, food I know the children go to the dogs. Um, which is not Jesus really insulting her, it sounds like it is, but the religious, the Pharisees and the scribes are the ones who call the Gentiles dogs. And actually, the word here in Greek is little puppies. Which is, it's a little bit cuter, it's not that cute. <laughs> but but they're the ones that are accusing them of that. And he's like, he's basically, I, I think he's just full on testing this woman. He's like, I'm going to, I'm going to use the terminology that the world is using and see how you respond. Mm. And she has this brilliant response of Lord, even the dogs under the table, eat the children's scraps, which he's saying two things here. So he's putting it in this very harsh language, which is what the culture is using, which is not, Jesus doesn't think they're dogs, but there is a truth to what he's saying in the sense that, the, the, and he says this later on, he says it all over the place, the Son of Man came to the Jewish people because they were the children of the covenants. They were the children of the promise. But the point of all of salvation history was that the people of God and the Israel were always meant to take it out to the rest. And so he's doing two things in that story. He's saying, yeah, the children need to be fed first because only then will they actually be empowered to feed everybody else. But he's also implying that even though I came to the children of Israel, it's for the sake of everyone else being fed. Mm. And so he's saying it in this weird, kind of very troubling language. Yes. But what he's saying is true. Right. And what he's saying is actually something this woman gets. She's like, no, it's not just for Israel. I get that. It's for the rest of us. And we are satisfied even with the scraps. And what does Jesus do? Does he give her the scraps? No, he goes and gives her the bread. Right, And that's the wording that Mark actually mm. uses. He mm. heals her child. He gives her real deal bread. And then later on, after the second miracle, he's going to multiply loaves and fishes again. He's going to feed exclusively Gentiles. Mm. So there's this whole thing in the schema of Mark. Yeah. They're like, just give us the scraps. And he's like, all right, we'll see what we're going to do. And then he gives her this real bread and raising or saving her child. And then he goes on in the most massive scale imaginable to give yeah. Gentiles real bread, exclusively Gentiles, though, which is all setting us up for the Eucharistic miracle where he's right. going to give all of the world his bread, his, his life, which is bread. Yeah. Anyway, 
I didn't say a word about our reading for this week, though. That was only the setup. But I think the setup's important, right? Right, it is. Because if you don't know that setup, we kind of miss it. And so he leaves the Syrophoenician woman. He goes, it's funny what it says. It says in our reading, he left the district of Tyre and went by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee to the district of the Decapolis. He went. Uh, he left Tyre and went by way of Sidon to the Decapolis, which is kind of like saying, and I stole this from Mary Healy. Geographically, scholars hate this line because it's like saying... Um, Oh, what is her line? It's like saying, I left Washington and went by way of New York City to Atlanta. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> Which it, it's geographically backwards. And so people are like, oh, Mark obviously doesn't understand the geography of the Holy Land. And it's this blah, blah, blah. Or somebody made a mistake. No, what Mark is trying to show is that he is going from end to end. Mm. He's going all over this region to set it up and prepare these children to receive bread. That's what he's doing. So I, I, there's something subtle in that. Um, and it says people are bringing, uh, bringing people to be healed. And there's this guy, this deaf man who had a speech impediment. And he begged him to lay his hand on him. It says he took him off by himself away from the crowd. There's something very subtle about this one that I really like. Because Jesus has shown, especially in Mark, maybe more in Mark than any of the other Gospels, of doing these big public miracles. Yeah. Of trying to, sh- he wants to show people what he is capable of and what the power of God is going to do. But not this guy. I know. I was, This guy he takes off. I was wondering why this one particularly warranted him pulling off uh, alone by himself. I don't know, but I'm stealing again from Mary Healy, who mm-hmm. suggests that it's this really interesting insight into how Jesus intuitively understands the unique needs of each human person. Oh. And maybe for whatever reason, which is unknown to us, actually rightly so, it's actually built into it, right? This person, for some reason, needed to have it done in private. Mm. And maybe that was a particular need of this. So it's not just right. just, just doing arbitrary miracles for miracles sake right he's actually healing persons mm, right yes. which is what this suggests to me right that this guy needs something else he needs something different which is really beautiful and so he does this whole thing touching his tongue you know sp- did you know that spit oh. had medicinal quality in the ancient world or it was understood to have medicinal quality uh, i i think it was like medicine i think that the bullies in middle school thought that they do when they uh, gleeked on you they went to the spit aisle of vitamin cottage <laughs> got little vials. i that's a pretty Gleek. weird that's a pretty weird thing but i can i can hang out with that um yeah but anyway so he does that he goes through this whole thing um with spit and touching his ears and touching his tongue uh he looked up i this is what i love so we know that the Gospel of Mark um, was written from Peter's point of view. So Mark is Peter's scribe. And Mark is the Gospel that's written hurriedly, I think, right before Peter's death by Mark to make sure he gets everything before Peter dies. Yeah. And it's only in Mark that you get these tiny little details that only somebody like Peter, who is probably there, would hear. So it has, it says he looked up to heaven and he groaned. And there's these little things that, that Mark feels the need to include that it's not just Jesus looked up to heaven and then he performed this miracle, which is how you'd you know have a story passed down perhaps. Right. But if you were there, you might be like, oh man, I remember he looked up to heaven and I heard him groan. Like he paused and he groaned because there was something really deep inside of him. Mm. And then he spit on the guy and then he, you know, he did the thing. <laughs> but there's something really profoundly beautiful because again, what it shows is that these are real persons that Jesus has not just interacted with, but impacted. Right. And Peter's like, I remember that. I remember that groan. That stuck with me for whatever reason and that he feels the need. And Mark feels it important enough that I got to record that. 
And what does he do? And then Mark finishes telling the story, basically showing that, look, Isaiah 35 is coming true in that guy. And that's what nobody expected, because Isaiah 35 was, at least in the initial sense, written to the people of Israel who were going into exile, who were being dispersed. They were going into this diaspora of the 12 tribes, like James says. But what they didn't realize is that answer to the diaspora, which we're getting in Isaiah 35, was not just for Israel. That the diaspora, and the way that Jesus actually refers to it, that both times that Isaiah 35 shows up in the Gospels, it is in reference to Gentile people being healed. Those are the blind seeing. Those are the lame walking. Those are the deaf hearing. Israel is a part of it. And like Jesus says to the Syrophoenician woman, it needs to come to Israel first but for the sake of going to everyone else. And so Jesus is literally flipping it on its head. He's taking every expectation of Isaiah. Oh, we're blind. We're deaf. We can't walk. We can't hear, which is all true. But you have the blind, deaf, and lame of Israel coming to Jesus with their judgmentalism and their their desperation because they feel like their jobs are at risk or whatever, their identities are at risk. And so the blind and deaf of Israel are shouting at Jesus as he is healing the blind and deaf of the rest of the hmm. world. Essentially doing the job that they were meant to do. Right. It's all flipped on its head. And then they and and which flips them on their heads. Which flips them on their heads. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In yeah. whether it's in public or private. And that's the Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. Well gosh, thank you all for tuning in. That was really powerful. Hmm. I wish I had more to say today. They were exceedingly astonished. I like that line. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> just uh, to put a fine point on it. And actually, they're saying, oh, so, okay, last thing. To hit me. Because I actually didn't notice this until literally just this second. Okay. He's in, he's with Gentiles. He's not with, he doesn't appear to be with Jewish people. Maybe he is. And the disciples are obviously there. Yeah. But after he heals this guy, and then everyone obviously see, well, he says he ordered them not to tell anybody. Uh, but the more he ordered them not to, the more they proclaimed it. They're like, mm-hmm. we can't keep it to ourselves. And he's like, just be quiet. Um, for whatever reason. And it says they were exceedingly astonished and they said, he has done all things well. He makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. They're quoting Isaiah. And who is the they? I think it's this Gentile outsider, quote unquote, dogs audience <laughs> who has such a deeper insight into not just Jesus, but the scriptures that foretell Jesus wow. than the leaders of the faith actually do. Wow. Because they quote it word for word. They're like, hey, see what he's doing? Mm. Oh, and then Mark or Peter, whoever it is, is like, oh, wait a second. <laughs> mm. Can you imagine the moment that Peter later on looking back, like puts the pieces together? He's <laughs> like, wait a second. He did this. And then they said that, which is actually quoting this, which <gasps> holy mackerel. And he's like, Mark, <laughs> hurry up. we got to write this down, which is just a beautiful thought. It is. And then he groaned. Don't leave that out. Don't forget that. <laughs> yeah. So he's coming for you. <laughs> I guess is the theme of it, right? It yeah. might take him a while. He's got other people to tend to, but he's coming. Yes. And the dogs will get their scraps, mm. which sounds like such a such sounds a sorry harsh. way to put it until you feel like the dog right. who is begging for the scraps. Mm. And you get that desperate. Yes. And then you realize that you're not going to get scraps. You're going to get the main course, mm. which is sometimes how I feel. Yeah. So anyway, there we are. Here we is. There we are. Thank you. God bless you. Thanks for tuning in. And we will talk to you next week. We will indeed. God bless you. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org A-I-C-T. You can find the Lanky Guys at lankyguys.org, and you can send us an email at lankyguys at thomascenter.org. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.